There is a God. He loves you. And he has handcrafted you for a marvelous purpose. I'm Brother Billy Hatridge, and thank you for listening to the Hatridge Sermons. Do you ever wonder why Jesus had to die? I mean, I understand the big picture, God's plan, right? The man without sin dies so that those with sin can live forever. But I mean on a, on a more personal, intimate, worldly level, of a, of a level of why on earth did Jesus have to die? Why did some backwater preacher from Nazareth draw the attention of the Roman governor and be crucified on a hill next to the criminals that were there? For the last four weeks, we've talked in depth about Jesus, about the man that he was, the prophecies he fulfilled, the miracles he performed, the great teachings that he gave to those who followed him, the kind of teachings that surpassed Christianity altogether and, and were ingrained in religions and cultures and beliefs around the world. He had such an impact on modern society that everything we know about the world today would be non-existent if it weren't for the coming of Jesus and the early Christian church. And yet, at the time of his arrest and his crucifixion, he was just this radical rabbi. And there were two beliefs in place. One was he was indeed the Messiah, and these miracles were because he was indeed the Son of God, and that his uh, claims of being his son were indeed true, or that he was demon-possessed, and that all these powers came from a demonic influence, and that he was a blasphemer. And it was the second idea that brought the attention of the high priests, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. The religious elite of Jerusalem wanted him gone. And it's interesting because he's only been at this for about three years at this point. Not long. He didn't go to Bible college, right? He was raised a carpenter in, in, in Nazareth. He was somewhat of an unknown until he began his ministry. And yet, at the age of 32 or 33... And, you know, I've talked about this a lot as I study Jesus. I relate a lot to him, right? I was raised blue-collar household. My dad was a, was a mechanic, an electrician, carpenter, those kind of jack-of-all-trades fella. I grew up in a fishing community right there close to Lake Millwood. I began preaching without ever having been to a, a, a ministry school. But folks didn't like Jesus. And we can see that because towards the end of his ministry, the crowds begin getting smaller and smaller in size. It wasn't just the, the religious elite, but the crowds, they loved the message of being loved and being forgiven, but they weren't so keen on the message of loving others and forgiving others. And we see that as Jesus' ministry, as his preaching begins to step on more and more toes and calls out the hypocrisy and calls out the, the corruption amongst his community, the crowds begin to disperse. His rock star image where he walks into town and there's just thousands of people flocking towards him just to reach out and touch his garment are no more. His 15 seconds of fame have seemed to have died away towards the end. 
And he knows that his time is coming, right? We see this in the, in the hours leading up to his arrest, to the Last Supper and, and the garden and the prayers, and he knows the time is at hand. And we know, too, that we like to point fingers at Judas, the betrayer, and all the things that Judas did. And, and, but we know Judas, as much of a crucial role as he had to play, he was just an instrument. He was just a tool being used by Satan, who was in turn being used by God to perform these things and to align everything in place for Jesus to die on that cross. When you read through the Gospels and you read through the Scriptures, you see that uh, Jesus had two separate trials, five separate hearings for two total trials. A trial under the Jewish law, under the Sanhedrin, and the trial with Roman law, with Pontius Pilate, trying to find what you could do with this man named Jesus. The Sanhedrin court, of course, they, they called him a blasphemer. They called him this, this threat to everything that was holy. He was corruption through and through. Jesus was a threat to the church that had to be stopped. His preaching was corruptible. He was influencing people the wrong direction. And so then they go to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, or the prefect of Rome, rather, and they bring Jesus to him because... These crucifixions, they had to be performed under Roman law. And it's important to note, too, that Pontius Pilate, he probably didn't live in Jerusalem. Right? This was Holy Week. There were people throughout Israel and, and Judea that were, that were flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And because of that, Roman influence, Roman uh, occupation increased sevenfold. Because you have all of these Jewish people gathering together, you need to kind of keep law and order a little bit, so you have more officers in town, you have more soldiers in town, you have more officials in town, making sure that the peace is kept. Now, Pontius Pilate, much like uh, Herod before him, he had to keep the peace between the Jewish uh, people that they were oppressing and the Roman soldiers and the Roman rule. And so he had to walk this fine line of keeping the people appeased and enforcing Roman law and rule. And so when the Sanhedrin came to him and said, hey, we've got this, uh, this preacher that we want to get put to death, he thought, well, you know, this isn't, they're not asking much. If this is something that we can appease the, the, the high church, the high priests of the time, and, and win a favor to them and kind of make them know that we're willing to play ball a little bit, maybe that'll help keep the peace and we don't have riots and an insurrection happen during this Holy Week with all of these Jewish people gathered together. And, you know, Pontius Pilate, he brings Jesus before him and he's, from my readings and from all of our readings too, Kind of a head-scratcher, right? He, he's sitting here looking at this guy. He's like, this guy's no threat. He seems peaceable. He seems likable guy. I don't see really any reason to put this poor guy to death. The, um, the high priest, they act like he's this huge threat to the church, but he seems chill and calm, and he says that he's not here to, to overthrow any governments or anything. In fact, when I ask him if he's king, he says his kingdom's not even of this earth. He's... If anything, he's a little squirrely in the head, right? Like Pontius Pilate can't find any reason to get rid of Jesus. However, he knows that to let him free means bringing the wrath of the high priests, the high church, the Sanhedrin, 
And he doesn't want that. He wants them happy because they are the religious elite of the Jewish community that he wants to stay peacefully oppressed. And so he goes out on the balcony overlooking the marketplace and he asks them, he says, look, it's the festival, it's, uh, it's Passover, I'll let one criminal free and one of them I'll crucify. We know this story, right? But interestingly enough, when you read through the architecture and you read through the, uh, the layout of the area, it was the upper marketplace that was below Herod's palace, which is probably where Pontius Pilate was staying during this time. And the upper market was where the wealthy shopped. And you know, I think about it because when I think back to that scene where they chant for Jesus' death and they say, no, we want, we want Barabbas released, we want Jesus crucified, I kind of have in my mind this torches and pitchforks mentality of this unruly mob down below, you know, chanting. No, it was the, the wealthy. It was the upper class of Jewish society who were down there in that marketplace below Herod's palace. And what we see is, is Jesus was at the mercy of, of the social structure of the time. And it's interesting to see this because likewise, during Jesus' ministry, he was always in the back alleys. He was always with the little man. He was always with those who were oppressed, those who were cast aside, those who were thrown to the side like garbage. That was Jesus' people. And that's what brought the attention and the wrath of the religious elite. We often look at Jesus and his crucifixion, and we think that it was Rome that put him to death, but it wasn't Rome, it was the church. It was the Jewish church of the time in the temple. Rome was just the executioner. And what a death it was for Jesus. Rome was violent. They were cruel. The crucifixion was, historically speaking, the most painful way to die. The Romans at the time of Jesus had perfected pain. They reveled in pain. They reveled in torture, making all of those know what happens to anyone who raises a finger against the Caesar. Not only this, but the crucifixion, when we read the story, and if this is the only version of crucifixions we know, it seems like it's a kind of a quick deal, but it was not. Criminals, political rivals, all of these people were tortured, lashed, skinned, nailed to crosses, and hung at city gates on top of hills, and left there for days to starve, to die, to be baked in the sun in places where everyone in town could see them. Children would wake up in the morning and go down to get fresh water and watch people hanging on crosses, dying to death over the course of days, sometimes even weeks. That is the imagery the crucifixion brings. This is what happens to those who fight against Rome. It was an awful, awful experience. So awful, in fact, that quite the pleads of death would echo down the city streets, kill me, kill me now, please end this torture. That's what those who were being crucified begged for, death. 
They begged for death. They pleaded death. Those hanging on the cross for days, all they wanted more than anything in this world was to be released from the pain that they were experiencing for hours, days, sometimes weeks on end. They had no power over their own death. They were at the complete mercy of Rome, the sun that beat on them, the crows and birds that would come and pick at their flesh, their own community members and family and friends that would come and taunt them as they hung there on the cross. That was the fate that awaited Jesus Christ. Not a firing squad, not a guillotine, not a quick, painless death, but the absolute worst torture imaginable on the face of this planet throughout history. And so we see them, they bring Jesus up to the cross, right? And they nail Him to it. And in chapter uh, 27 of Matthew, verse 32, and remember, we as we're reading this, we feel like this is an important moment, but to everyone in the crowd, to the Roman soldiers executing him, this was just another day, another criminal, another dude put on another cross. Verse 32, it reads, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You know what's interesting about that scene? stripping him bare, setting his clothes to the side, casting lots to see who gets his possessions. This fulfilled prophecy written centuries earlier, the casting the lots. Prophecies written before Rome was even a thing, before this style of death was even imagined. The prophecy was written this very moment in time and in history. Furthermore, as they crucified criminals, they would often put the list of charges above their head. This guy is a traitor. This guy is a blasphemer. This guy is a thief. This guy is a murderer, adulteress, whatever it might have been. These are the charges against them. Because they wanted the Jews walking up and down the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Roman rule, not just the Jewish people, to know this is what happens when you do these things. The sign above Jesus' head it was a mockery. It wasn't a serious crime. They knew that. The Romans knew that. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't led an, 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 an uprival against, uh, an uprising, rather, against Roman rule. We have the zealots in his company that wanted that to happen, right? There are a lot of people who wanted Jesus to free Israel from Roman oppression and to make it a great nation again. That's what he was supposed to do as the Messiah, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. And he preached against that very notion time after time after time. So it was a mockery. But even then, it was 100% accurate. He was indeed the king of the Jewish people. In fact, he was the king of the the very thing that they mocked him with was the one truth that they had. 
but they didn't realize it at the time. He hung there on that cross. They put him up mid-morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The skies are darkened. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he goes through hell on earth. We talk about punishment, right? Hell punishment. We burn in hellfire forever and ever and ever and ever. But again, the crucifixion is literally the worst way to exist on this planet. And Jesus hung there on that cross. But then he cries out. He cries out, what? It is finished. And his spirit is given up. And he dies there on the cross. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Five or six hours total. He hung there on the cross. Now keep in mind, the cross was designed to keep people alive in perpetual hell for days, if not weeks. That was the point of the cross. That's how the Romans engineered it, was to make sure that people suffered for a very long time. So even as Jesus hung on this cross, even as Jesus had been tortured and whipped and stripped bare, he had complete control over his own demise. Everything about the cross was supposed to keep him alive for quite a long time after but he had complete control over his own death. All the way up there to the end. Why? Why, why, why did he have to go out that way? We understand that he came here on earth. We understand that he came to die for our sins. But why in this way? Why in such an awful, terrible way? Furthermore, we know he tells his followers that to live a Christian life means picking up our own crosses and following him. I don't know about you, but after reading about the crucifixion and the Roman cross and how they executed, that's the last thing I want for me. And yet Jesus tells his followers that that is the cost of discipleship. So why? Why? The people in the crowd chanted, you can come down anytime you want. We've seen your power. We've seen your might. Either you have control over the demons because you are one, in which case you just come down and you know, torture us for doing this, or you are indeed who you say you are, and you have charge over the angels, and you can call them down, and they will remove you from this cross, and yet he stayed there. Why? John chapter 15 Jesus hanging on that cross is something that absolutely none of us would do for another human being. That's what he tells us we're supposed to do, to be willing to die for our friends. But I'll be honest, someone put a gun to my head and said that I had to go through that or else Joe Ed Penny was getting a bullet. Bye, Joe Ed. I'm not, I'm not doing it. You're not, no. Are you kidding me? That kind of pain and torture and agony for day? No. And yet, Jesus willingly voluntarily went through that because as he says in John 15 verse 9 as the father loved me so I have loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete my command is this love each other as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. I love it because he's saying, look, there's no greater love than this to, die, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Oh, by the way, all of you following me, you're not my disciples, you're not my servants, you're not under me in any sort of way. You are my friends, you are my equals, you are brothers and sisters through the blood that I shall shed. And I'm going to die for you. Now this is, of course, before the crucifixion. But it's eerie, right, how, how on the nose Jesus was about his death, about what was coming, because he knew it. Because he knew these things. These things were in, in plan for as long as <laughs> he had existed. So why is love so important, right? Because Pontius Pilate, he wouldn't have gone up there and died for any Roman under his rule. I wouldn't be able to find a single member of the Sanhedrin court that was willing to die for the lepers and the outcasts in the city streets. Jesus understood a simple truth. This world, great life, isn't about power. It's about love. It's not about power. That's what the Sanhedrin wanted. That's what Jesus is preaching against the religious elite was about. He said, y'all have become so consumed with power, so consumed with the law, that you're stoning people in the streets, that you're crucifying them on the hills or asking the Romans to do it. You have missed the very message of everything that God has put on you to love each other and to take care of each other. Why do you think it was that once he started making the Samaritans out to be the good guys in his stories, the people started mumbling and turning away and walking away from his message? They didn't want to hear that. They don't like hearing about being nice to foreigners and, and, and being nice to enemies and to allow the Romans to not just take their coats but their sandals too. They didn't like hearing a message about loving those outside of their own culture and community. But that was Jesus' message. Furthermore, look at the messages he gave the rich, right? It's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. You cannot serve both money and God. <laughs> Let he without sin cast the first stone. Jesus' message about power and law was a very, very clear one. The greatest law is to love. And why is that? Why is the greatest message to love? Because of what 1 John for I wrote over my number here. 417 tells us God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Is there a group of people that you're afraid of? A group of people. A demographic, a religion, skin color, 
political affiliation, is there a group of people that you're afraid of? Or maybe not afraid of, but that you fear, that you hate, that you uh, disagree with to the point where you can't see how you could like them. I've got news for you. Toe-stomping news for you. You cannot claim to love God. You're a liar. First John 4. One of the hardest truths for us as modern day Christians to live with. But it's right there. We cannot hate people. If you have decided to follow Jesus, you cannot hate people. Period. End of message. Sign, seal, deliver. You cannot hate people. You cannot fear people. Because if you do, if you fear people, hate people, dislike people, you cannot also love God. Because Jesus is calling on us to be like Him, to love like Him, to be willing not to hang on a cross for our loved ones, for our children, our spouses, those in our community, other Christians, but to hang on a cross for those who, on September 11th, took razor blades against pilots and crashed them into buildings. In the 40s, we're herding Jews into gas chambers. Muggers. Rapists. Thieves. All of these people. The people that we've grown to hate, grown to fear, Jesus died for. That's a hard truth, but it's the truth. He didn't die for Christians. He didn't die for the Jews. He didn't die for a set number of people. In fact, there's a very specific reason why Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Do you know why that is? Do you know why he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Because 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when the high priest was in the temple offering sacrifices. 3 o'clock in the afternoon was a standard time when the high priest would perform sacrificial rituals in the temple. And as they're there in the temple, it tells us that as Jesus died, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was what? Torn in two. Now, this wasn't an empty temple, right? This isn't like, oh, it's, you know, Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, its place is empty. No, 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 no. Everybody's there because they're performing this sacrificial ritual. They're offering up the sacrifice as the greatest sacrifice is being offered up, up the hill. And that curtain gets torn in two, and it symbolizes that there is no longer a barrier between God and His people. That he's no longer sequestered away into a place where only the high priests can see him and interact with him. That he is now amongst all of us for all time. Jesus, the man without sin, had to die, which he never had to die, right? The cost of sin is what? Death. So if Jesus never sinned, then Jesus could have, quote, in theory, lived forever, walked the face of this earth for thousands of years. 
Because without sin, he never had to die a physical death. No, all of these things happened because he loved us. He wanted to save us from hellfire and damnation. He knew what the cost of sin was because he bore it on that cross. I wish I could stay for another week because next Sunday we're doing the last session on Jesus. We're talking about his resurrection. Because up to this point, 98% of the world agrees. 98% of the world agrees that Jesus was a rabbi in Jerusalem or in the area that preached and that was crucified. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all of these folks agree that this man existed and that he did these things and he was put to death on the cross. Next week we talk about the thing that separates us. But what kind of love do we have, right? God is love. Love casts out fear. And I'll be honest, folks, there's a lot of people out there I'm terrified of. There's a lot of groups out there that I don't want coming anywhere near me. But I recognize the fact that that is as ungodly as it comes. Because it literally tells me in the scripture, both in Paul's writing and in words in red, that for me to be afraid of another human being means I do not have God in my heart. That God came in the flesh, in the form of Jesus, to say that we had become so focused on law and punishment that we had forgotten about loving each other. And that to change that course, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The greatest love of all. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love, the unbounding, unconditional, impossible love that he had for all of us for all of us sinners, for all the things that we've done wrong in our life. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel writers who recorded these things. And, and, and you watching over the scripture that it makes it to us 2,000 years later, the other side of the globe, that we're reading this story, this impossible story of an impossible man with an impossible love. Lord God, we want just an ounce of that love for ourselves, Lord God, that we invite you into our hearts, that you guide and direct our footsteps, that we go out of this church right now with, with impossible love in our hearts for every man, woman, and child that we meet, that we know that everywhere we turn, we see your creation, we see your glory, we see your truth. Lord God, let us love like Jesus loved. Lord, we just pray that you forgive us for our hate, forgive us for our fear, Forget us, forgive us for our, all the ways that we have learned to, to hate others, to fear others. These worldly notions that have separated us from the truth of your grace and your power and your love. Lord, we just pray that you forgive us for our sins, that you give us the strength to forgive others. We pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen.